This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. BBC Sounds. Music, radio, podcasts. Hello, I'm Helen Mark, and thanks for downloading this episode of Radio 4's Open Country podcast, a series that brings you fascinating stories from every corner of the UK countryside. We hope you enjoy it. I'm making my way along the rugged coastline of North Cornwall and I'm heading towards what has to be one of the most spectacular historical sites in the UK, the late medieval ruins, Tintagel. Now that name will probably conjure up all sorts of myths and fantasy about King Arthur, but for this open country I've come to Tintagel to discover how, first of all, a new footbridge is recreating the historic link from the mainland onto this headland which allows visitors to access a place and learn about the real history of this landscape although the construction of a footbridge has not been without controversy but I think that at any moment now as I'm walking along it's going to be quite a special revelation there. It's magnificent. We've got the savage rock high above our heads. The footbridge spans between the mainland and the headland. It's almost airy in its construction. So here the bridge has two halves, two cantilevers of 35 metres from either bank that reach out and then touch, but not quite, in the middle. I've heard about this gap between the two arms of the bridges. There's a technical reason, and that's to allow for thermal expansion. It's a steel structure. In the summer, it gets bigger and expands. In the cold winter, it retracts, and the gap gets slightly bigger. But also, there's a poetic idea that you've got this point in the middle of the bridge when you step from one side to another. The idea of stepping from the mainland to the island, the present to the past, reality and legend, all of these things that make Tintagel such a wonderful and fascinating place. William Matthews, you are a designer and you were part of the team that, that set this footbridge in the landscape. How does it feel to be back here on this particular day with the, the wind and the rain storming around us? But obviously looking up, it's, it's great satisfaction. One of the aims when we set out was to design something that was obviously of its time, but also timeless, so that people would look at it and realise it is a modern contribution but it's something that will age gracefully and hopefully in 50, 100 years' time people will still look at it and see it as something that's fitting for this stunning location. It becomes part of the story of this place. Exactly, and the fascinating layers of history that there are at Tintagel. Obviously there's the early medieval history, the medieval castle, the Victorian editions, and this is just our 21st century edition, the recreation of the old land bridge that connected the foreland with the mainland. One of the challenges, obviously, was, was how were we going to build in this location? A traditional arch bridge requires a lot of formwork, a lot of scaffolding, because it's only structurally stable when it's complete. So the idea of building a temporary formwork, a scaffolding, uh, in this location was just unthinkable. Cantilever bridges are some of the oldest designs in the world, and the great thing about it is that it's always stable. You start with a small piece and you build out slowly, bit by bit. How physically did you manage it 
again, just looking at the landscape around us, you come down a sharp valley towards the sea, which churns around the base of the rock day and night. There's no vehicular access here. We can't get a lorry, a crane or anything like that to the site. There were some crazy ideas of bringing it in on a boat, but you can see the weather today. Um, bringing it in by helicopter, but again, on the daylight today, it would be impossible. So what we actually used was a cable crane. It's akin to a ski lift, and they're used in the Alps often to build ski lifts. So you string up a wire in a long straight line, that enables us to pick up a piece of the bridge at one end and transport it along the cable and then drop it into place. The deck of the bridge, we've used slate, obviously we're in Cornwall, it was mined uh, a mile away at the Delabol Quarry, and we put the slate on edge. Somebody uh, very aptly said it was like akin to walking on a box of after eight mints. <laughs> and the, there are 40,000 slates all laid on edge, which gives you this lovely feel as you walk across, across the bridge. So we're just going to go a little bit closer to the edge, but the problem with today coming here to Tintagel is that it is a fiercely wet and windy day. And um, there's quite a storm at sea. Uh, the spray from the waves is being brought up to our faces here on the edge. But we're going to persevere because, you know, part of this being here is hopefully to be able to get out onto the footbridge. We'll just have to wait and see if we can get a break in the weather. <laughs> William has brought me down to um, a lower edge of the cliff. And then there are the old steps. Well, we can barely see them now because the spray coming up from the sea. But that's how people used to access onto Tintagel, that part of Tintagel anyway. Exactly. Here you have the old path and a little wooden bridge. <laughs> And imagine that wooden bridge is 30 metres above sea level, but in a wild storm, still rocks land on that bridge. What brought it up from? From the beach. They crash onto the beach and pebbles get thrown that high. One of the things that the bridge does, it, it, it really does reconnect the two halves of the old castle. So now visitors come in the way that they would have done in the 14th century, along the mill path, come through the main arch, into the mainland ward and then across the bridge and onto the island ward in the sense that people would have come 500 years ago. Well, look, we'll just have to hold fire and with luck we might be able to get across that bridge because it's going to be part of the experience of being here. Looming up in front of you are the ruins, the craggy ruins of this castle. And I'm with Wynne Scott, you're with English Heritage, you're a curator. So this castle is 13th century. 1230s it was built by Richard, Earl of Cornwall. And we think that he was doing it to actually celebrate the legend of King Arthur. Even then? Even then, because to the medieval mind, actually King Arthur was like a big news, much bigger in their minds than, than it is to us today. It was popular throughout Britain, uh, throughout Europe, in fact. It's even in the national curriculum in France to study King Arthur now. So King Arthur was just one of those great legends. It was the equivalent of us watching the movies. It was <laughs> the big story for them. And his resonance is still here, obviously. But we are walking towards the ruins of a castle, not neatly built with 
square or blocks or anything. It is as though they have taken the, the slate stones out of the landscape and, and packed them on top of each other. They've very eroded these ruins. Where we go through here in a moment, we can see through the main gateway of the castle and we're going to enter the outer or mainland ward of the castle. Why did Richard want to build his castle here? Did it have to do with the Arthur story? Well, yes, he had a number of castles in Cornwall. He had about 40 castles throughout southern England. So he was an incredibly rich man. But because he was Earl of Cornwall, he wanted to anchor himself somewhere in a really significant place in Cornwall. And it looks like this site already had great associations with the Arthurian legend at that time. We don't know exactly how or why... But it could be because there was actually a folk tradition that there had been some really important settlement here hundreds of years before. Or it might be that they just saw some ruins here and they said, oh, that's old, must be Arthur. The thing is, this is not King Arthur's castle. We have to establish that from the start. So we've got it that it was Richard, the Earl of Cornwall. As we've come through the main gate, we're looking towards the headland, connected now, of course, by this footbridge. Um, you have people checking the wind speeds yep. at the moment. And are we able to, to, to make the crossing? Yes. Mike, the site manager, has just told us that the wind is OK and it's safe for us to cross. When the wind is really bad, you can get blown off the island. So it's not to do with the bridge that we, we have to close it sometimes. And the reason I really want to get across is because the building of the bridge has helped develop, discover more of the real story of this landscape. So, first steps onto the bridge. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> and it, oh gosh, and a huge drop down to the, oh, the sea, smashing against the rocks. So we're almost at the halfway point. Dare we stop and look? Oh, my, my hat nearly blew off there. <laughs> um, and look around us. For what do we see? In fact, on a clear day, you can see Lundy out in the uh, Bristol Channel there, small island on the horizon. We're looking along the Cornish coast and the waves, as you say, crashing on the rocks here. It's such a dramatic landscape. But it, it can be very wild like this and sometimes it can be very calm. Only the other day here I was watching seals uh, just playing around in the water down there. This is the, the famous gap. It's, uh, <laughs> it's about five or six centimetres wide. It's perfectly safe. I'm standing astride it here. And it's just such wonderful magic to look down in between to see the rocks and, and the waves below us. It is. It's quite an unusual viewpoint, isn't it? Down to the ground below. Let's keep walking on, though. You can see, as we go into the island ward over here, there's a set of buildings on the right. Actually, it's just the Great Hall that's been rebuilt a series of times. So as each one was built, the end fell down the cliff. So you can see how it's been truncated here. And then they built another building a little bit smaller inside. And then that's fallen down the cliff. And then they built another one inside that. So it's a, like a Russian doll. So we'll come off the, the slate and iron bridge and onto the headland. And just suddenly we're completely sheltered. That's quite uncanny. It's amazing, isn't it? Oh. So this castle we're standing in is that castle built by Richard in the 1230s. And it's here to celebrate King Arthur. We're pretty sure. And interestingly, when this, these ruins were excavated in the 1930s by an archaeologist called Raleigh Radford, he ventured outside that curtain wall of the castle mm -hmm. and onto the island. And he also dug below us, within the castle here. Wherever he dug, he found large quantities of pottery that he recognised as coming from the Mediterranean. 
and hundreds of years earlier than this castle. So suddenly we realised there was a, a much earlier phase to this site that nobody had appreciated before. And it dates that time after the Romans. So the Romans left 410 AD, so we're talking 5th, 6th, 7th centuries. So it's actually about 700 years before Richard built his castle. We've got a completely different and really important phase of this site. So it was a place of significance in the history of Cornwall. Cornwall and in Europe, in fact, in the wider sense. What we have here is a site that we now know is um, something like 100 buildings across the site. It's bigger than London at the time. And we've got more quantity of pottery from North Africa, from Turkey, from Greece, found on the site so far than all the other sites of this period in Britain put together. So something incredible was going on here. And that brings me when, if I could just ask you a little bit about it, because obviously you're representing English heritage, and what you're alluding to there is a very deep and complex history of Cornwall, mm -hmm. which some feel that should be told much more as a Cornish story mm. rather than being subsumed by the Arthurian legend. It depends how you see the story of King Arthur. The actual ethnicity of that legend itself is arguable and, and not fully understood. So we can't say it belongs to any particular community. Richard, he was Earl of Cornwall, but he was part of the English royal family. So he was here to celebrate that. And, and of course, the Earldom of Cornwall has become the Duchy of Cornwall and therefore Prince Charles. But how do you make sure the Cornish that complex history that you are gradually unearthing from the 1930s and even more when the footbridge was being built is told as a part of the Cornish landscape. It's very important to some people, it very is. important. It really is important and, and, and understanding the archaeology of the Cornish landscape is incredibly important for how we understand the castle. We can't actually say what this site was in that early medieval period, that post-Roman period. The favourite theory is that it's a royal site for the kings of Cornwall. But we, we can't be absolutely certain about that. We don't say it's an English story, we say it's a Cornish story. And that's what you have to do, you have to celebrate local identities. And in no way are we sort of saying this is, we're not putting an English stamp on this at all. The legend of King Arthur not only inspired Richard, the first Earl of Cornwall, to build the late medieval ruin we see today, but that legend continues to inspire people to settle in Tintagel and the many other places named after or that claim connections to him. Jill the Med is a storyteller who has also been moved by the myths and legends that have worked their way into this place. Now, she often wanders along the cliffs here, sharing stories with passers-by, but as it's so stormy today and few people are out and about, I'm going to go and meet her at her home. Come and see the story room. We get the most fabulous view, Jill, out across the coastline. And it is quite nice, I have to say, to get out of that fierce wind for a little <laughs> while. So shall we settle in your story room? For you, Jill, are the storyteller. I am the Tintagel storyteller, which is... A title that I love. And a place that is full of story. Absolutely. So stories of Tintagel then, I know there are a lot. Well, there's some that I set in Tintagel, 
but aren't part of the main mythos. But the ones of the myth of Tintagel, obviously you start with the conception and birth of Arthur. High King Uther, Uther Pendragon, fell in love with the wife of Gorlois, the Duke of Cornwall. And with the help of Merlin, he disguised himself as Gorlois and went into the castle one night and lay with Igraine. And Arthur was conceived. Fortunately, Gorlois was killed just before Uther Pendragon arrived at the castle. So it meant that it was okay then later for Uther to marry Igraine and that Arthur really was his son. So Arthur was conceived? Conceived in the castle. At Tintagel, but yes. not born there? Yes, he was born was there. Was he? He was born there. And part of the agreement that Uther had made with Merlin was that if he was able to get to reach Igraine, that if a child was born, the child would be given to Merlin on the day of its birth. And he smuggled it out of the castle and away to be raised as he decided. Tintagel was a famous port worldwide, ships coming in from everywhere, right back as far in history as we can trace. So the stories that would have been told round here were stories that the sailors brought in and told in the pubs. There are a few Arthur stories, but not many things like, again, not generally known. Inside the island, deep inside, is a huge cavern where Arthur's knights lie sleeping, waiting for the call to arms. <laughs> what are your thoughts about the footbridge? I love it. <laughs> for years now, I haven't been able to get across to the island. And so the very first day the footbridge was opened to the locals was when I was able to go across and go on up to the top. Now, Jill mentioned the sailors sharing stories and that this was an important port area. That's scary to think of on a day like this. But the creation of the footbridge meant some new excavations could be done at the same time to add to what was discovered in the 1930s. So I'm going to go back to the Tintagel headland to see Jackie Novokoski, the lead archaeologist who has been unearthing the mystery beneath these ruins. We're standing on the what we call the eastern part of the headland where the haven is, where the harbour is, and it's really in this area that Radford concentrated his consolidation of the ruins, as well as on the top. And then in the 1980s there was a fire on the headland and a lot of new earthworks or lines of buildings which weren't obvious before were revealed. So suddenly the whole picture of the place looks completely different. Rather than just a few buildings, you've got hundreds of them. So it's really underlying how extraordinary the whole place is. The construction of the footbridge, part of that was that you were able to maybe excavate deeper into the, the history of this island. So take me back 
to when you first got the opportunity? What did it feel like? What were your thoughts of being able to do that? Oh, well, it's an extraordinary place to be, Tintagel. And what you're seeing when you look at all the ruins around the eastern part of the headland and on the top and on the southern terrace where we were excavating for two years in 2016 and 17, you're seeing the remains of stone buildings which belong to the much earlier history here. So it, it, it's an extraordinary place to dig because what you see above ground it doesn't really show you what's below the ground. And we would love to be able to go up to the top to where you were digging, but the winds have picked up again. We can see the greying clouds in the distance are already beginning to shed some of the rain. You know, that lovely contact between the cloud and the sea that you get, that sort of curtain of rain. So we're we're tucked in for a little bit of shelter behind, should we call it the more modern castle? Yes, (laughs) the more recent castle, yes. yes. What did you begin to take out of your excavation site? Our excavations revealed a suite of stone buildings that had never been seen before and lying around those buildings were rubbish pits related to when the buildings were used containing animal bone and thousands of artefacts mainly of the imported pottery and the fine glass that was coming to here at Tintagel in the 5th and 6th centuries AD been really exciting <laughs> it was it was just it, in your it was just amazing because we had a team here and every day was just an amazing day because it was a surprise and people were finding the lines of the buildings they were picking up pieces of pottery and they were making these real connections with the extraordinary story of Tintagel being linked to the distant Mediterranean world so what pieces helped confirm that? What was pulled out? One of the main pieces that we found were um, large fragments of these types of stone pots with two handles which contained wine or olive oil which was being imported here to Tintagel from the eastern Mediterranean world. We call them amphora and we've got the largest numbers of amphora sherds from anywhere in northwest Europe. Just on this headland? Just on this headland. And you have to also realise that only a small part of it has been excavated. So the potential here is quite (laughs) phenomenal when you start to think. And you were handling these pieces and you were building the story of this place having a connection with the wider world. That's right. I mean, that's what's so extraordinary. Tintagel is actually quite remote. It's sticking out into the Bristol Channel and it's just a destination. It's a destination in the post-Roman world. Did you find evidence of the people at all in terms of their daily lives, of their writing, of what they wore? We found some of the fine dinner plates that were also being exported here and some fragments of glass from some of the fine drinking vessels. All of them are exotic, coming from the Mediterranean world. We did find some metalwork, some brooches, which show that people that are here are of a special status, a special class. But one of the most exciting things we found, as well as all that, was an inscribed stone with writing on it. And that really is quite unique for this part of the world. Writing. It was an ordinary piece of slate with seven lines of text in Latin, in Britonic, the ancient British language that was here, and some Greek symbols as well. The the various specialists who've looked at the stone have told us they've got the names of, of a couple of people. So... It all shows that the people who were living here in this period, in the 5th and 6th centuries, they were part of an elite, literate community. And you must hope for the future that you'll be able to excavate more because you're digging into the real history of this headland. 
of the story of Tintagel. I don't know how you feel about the whole Arthur thing. It's part of the intricate story that's here, because this is a place with multiple stories. And the key thing is that there's an early significant history here. It looks like there is a, some kind of elite community living here in the post-Roman period, and the significance of that place continues to endure into the, what we call the early and the later medieval period. The King Arthur story is a sort of fabrication which comes and is written down several centuries later. But there could well be a folk memory or something which suggests that Tintagel's early significance lingers on and that's why King Arthur becomes attached to this place. I think people are naturally drawn to places in the landscape that have stories embedded in them. Stories of the place and its people from the past or in the present. Stories based on fact or pure fiction. The best part of that is that it encourages us out into our landscapes where we can explore and discover more for ourselves. And Tintagel on this wild Cornish coastline is a perfect example of that.